Hello everyone! I am very excited for being here today with you for the premiere episode of this second season of WeChats, the podcast brought to you by the St. Andrew's Society of Mexico. I am your host, Tania Fuentes, and I am very happy to announce that for today's episode we have a very, very special guest with us, Her Majesty's Ambassador to Mexico, Corinne Robertson. Hi, Corinne. Thank you for joining us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for starters? Great. No, well, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be invited. Um, so what can I tell you about myself? I'm, um, I am 49 years old. <laughs> I was born in Sheffield. I grew up in Sheffield in, in South Yorkshire in the north of England. Um, I'm married to a Scot, <laughs> as, as you may know, James Robertson, who's from... Uh, Aberdeenshire in the northeast of Scotland. <laughs> Great. So uh, his his family are still still there, um, and so we have kids who are half English and half Scottish. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I I, I grew up in Sheffield. Um, I went away to university, and then I joined the the Foreign Office, the diplomatic service, straight from uh, straight from university. And uh, have yeah been in the diplomatic service ever since then actually and and had postings in uh, Japan, uh, Brussels, Canada and now Mexico um, and done various jobs in between. Oh wow, Japan and Canada. Well, that sounds very very interesting, very adventurous. Yeah, no, I, they were fantastic postings. I really enjoyed both of them and actually a very strong um, St. Andrew Society in both Japan and in Canada. Uh, I mean, Japan might be more of a surprise, perhaps. You don't think of automatic sort of Scottish connections with Japan, but a really lively St. Andrew Society in, in, in Japan. Um, and then in Canada, of course, there are really strong historical links, lots of Scots or people of Scottish heritage in, in Canada. So the, uh, many Canadians feel a very strong connection to Scotland. And there's like a, a lot of, Scot of Scottish associations there as far as I know, right? It's not only one, they have like one per each province or that, I think I'd leave. Yeah, no, I think they do actually. Yes, they have, uh, yeah, local chapters and uh, national chapters. Uh, so lots of, lots of activity um, around, you know, St. Andrew's Day and around Burns Night and yeah, lots of, and actually lots of the, uh, lots of pipers, uh, lots of pipes and drums in Canada. Uh, in their in their military and uh, many Canadian celebrations or festivals there will be pipes and drums as well so yeah it made me feel at home being there oh wow that's great that, that sounds beautiful I wish I I can go soon I haven't been but I really want to and so were you surprised to learn that there was a Scottish society in Mexico you know what I wasn't really surprised because of the fact that you know I had the I've had the experience of uh, living in other countries and have always found that um, the the Scottish societies the St Andrew societies are, are really lively and dynamic um, and you know you often find that um, you know people living overseas expatriates are kind of even more 
proud and proud of their their heritage and, their, and of their their roots and of their connections than people living in in, in Scotland or the UK itself. So um, people are often much more patriotic when they're living overseas, and they tend to keep traditions alive. And of course, um, um, you know, the population of Scotland I think is is about five million, um, but there are at least five million Scottish expatriates around the world. So I found that wherever I go in the world, there's always a, a lively a Scottish contingent or people that feel a passion or a love for Scotland. Uh, but it was really lovely to get here and find that the St Andrew Society in Mexico is so active and so dynamic, lots of events. And I was also pleased to see that the members are a real mixture of, um, of British people, Scottish people, but also Mexican people who have studied in Scotland. Um, and I think actually that mixture of nationalities as well as that mixture of generations, actually. It's great that there are so many young people in the, the St. Andrew Society of Mexico because, um, you know, I've been in some places overseas where you find that the the loyal societies, the St. Andrew Society or the um, whatever whatever it may, may, may be, the St. George's Society, tend to be kind of uh, the older generation, um, but without much sort of new blood and, and younger people coming through. But I think it's great that here in Mexico, you know, you have um, many of the or Mexican students or former students who have studied in, in Scotland and that have a love for Scotland mixed with uh, many of our, our older expatriate community in Mexico as well. Yeah, I think that's great too, you know, that they are accepting Mexicans as well. You know, I'm like super happy about being part of the society and uh, well, it's been it's been wonderful being chief as well. So yeah, I'm very happy about that. But I think you're right. It, and it used to be a bit like that, like mostly um, older generations, but now we're, you know, trying to, to attract younger people through like more diverse events and things that can be more appealing to younger people. And, and yeah, I think it's working. So it's, it's been great. So overall, your experience with the San Andreas Society of Mexico? Yes, I think it's been really, really positive and, um, and really good fun. I'm obviously at the moment, it's a real shame that we can't all meet in person for burn suppers and uh, St Andrew's balls but I think um, you know when we were meeting together it was it was great fun we really enjoyed uh, coming along uh, to the events and meeting people and when I first arrived in Mexico actually coming to the St Andrew's ball was a it was a great way of sort of starting to to meet people in the British community and to to make connections so I found it really valuable to to be involved with the St Andrew Society. And I think actually since lockdown, um, I think you've done a great job of trying to keep the society going with things like this, the WeChats and the virtual Burn Supper uh, and the virtual St Andrew's uh, Day. So I think it's um, testament to your creativity actually um, that you've managed to keep it going. Um, and I'm sure it's been, I'm sure it would have been a real lifeline to many members of the society who are perhaps on their own at home or feel a little bit isolated or vulnerable. So I think it's great that you're doing this during the pandemic. 
Yes, thank you, thank you. I'm really glad you've enjoyed the events because yeah, at first we were, well, a bit bummed and disappointed by you know this whole thing, and we were really looking forward to having the the events in person. And you know when it, all this started, we were like so optimistic, and we we're like, oh no, 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 this will be done by January, so we'll have the burns in person. And of course that didn't happen, but we've we've made our best effort to keep things going and you know try to make it as as bearable as possible for everyone who's isolated as you say so yeah I'm really glad you've enjoyed them so uh, let's go back a little bit to like your your career and all, all, all of your experience so tell me was it always in your plans to become a diplomat or like was that like the the main goal or did it just happen uh, what if influenced you to take this career path Yeah, no, it was never in my plans, actually, actually Tanya. No? <laughs> um, I mean, I was a, a, st a student. I studied, uh, I studied Spanish and French um, at Cambridge and, and loved the, I loved academic studies. Um, much of my degree, as well as the language, was um, Latin American history and literature, um, Spanish literature as well, and French Uh, philosophers of the 18th century or playwrights of the 17th century. I, I mean, I really loved um, studying literature and history and philosophy. Um, and in fact, I originally was thinking that I would stay on as an academic. Uh, my father is an academic or was an academic. He's retired now. And my mum uh was a school teacher and i think i kind of you know was really interested in continuing with um research and studies and i got a place to do a uh, a phd to do a doctorate in mm. some very obscure element of peruvian indigenous literature it was a very sort of narrowly focused thesis but i had my place to do a doctorate but i needed funding i didn't have the funding myself so i'd applied for a grant Um, and at the same time, um, you know, my, in fact, James, my husband, um, had graduated the year before me and he had joined the civil service. And he said, well, why don't you, as a backup, you know, why don't you apply for the civil service? Because it's a really good experience. You know, it teaches you about interviews and taking tests and, you know, it'll be a good thing to do for preparing for um, entering the workplace and going for other jobs if you don't end up being an academic. And so I went for it um, and then I, I applied and I got through the first few rounds of exams and I'd chosen the foreign office as my, my sort of top choice because I thought, well, I like languages, I like traveling. Um, and then the further I got with the process, the recruitment process, uh, it, it took about six months altogether. The further I got, the more I became really interested in diplomacy and in the diplomatic service. Um, and, you know, I got to the point where I had to spend two days in London taking tests and doing interviews and um, meeting a psychiatrist and various things. And actually, I came away from that thinking, wow, I, this is fascinating. I'd really like to do this. So I felt sort of torn. But then fate decided because um, the same day that I received my letter from, it was the British Academy, saying that there was no grant funding available that year for uh, PhDs for art students, uh, which was a disappointment. I also received a letter inviting me to my final interview at the Foreign Office. So I went along and I got offered Uh, got offered the job and actually I was quite pleased in a way and my father as I say who was an academic said you know 
much better that you join the diplomatic service. The world of academia isn't as good as it used to be. It's much, you know, it's much more sort of political and challenging. Um, so he kind of said, no, you're definitely better off being a, a diplomat. And and since I joined the, the Foreign Office, I've not looked back. I've absolutely loved um, everything that I've done. Uh, since then. So no, I didn't know anybody that was a diplomat um, and I had no sort of connections um, into the Foreign Office. You know, my family are from, well, my grandparents were all, you know, working class, um, hadn't gone to university. My parents were both the first in their families to go to university, which is where, where they met. So I didn't come from that kind of background where we knew diplomats or, you know, we knew ambassadors, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but obviously, you know, the opportunity came up and I've absolutely loved it. I think one of the, the great things for me about the career, uh, if there's anybody listening that's interested in becoming a diplomat, uh, is the variety. You know, it, I mean, I've been in the Foreign Office now since 1994. Um, so it'll be 26 years. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so yeah, it'll be 27 years this year. Um, and, you know, I'm always feeling challenged and tested and that I can sort of expand my learning and learn new things because, you know, every few years you move and do something completely different. Um, so I've done, you know, my obviously this job is, is fabulous and definitely feels like um, in many ways the most exciting job I've done so far. But in previous roles, you know, I've been head of our counterterrorism department in the UK, for instance. I've, um, I've I've worked on European Union policy. Um, I've negotiated treaties. I've worked on climate change. I've lived in Japan, as I say, Canada, Brussels. Um, you know, I've run a directorate in the Foreign Office, which is in the corporate side of the organisation. So, looking after security and our estate. Um, and so it's it's you, you do feel that there's a change every few years and um, that variety is what's really kept me interested and of course we have elections every few years so you have to change uh, there's a change of government so um, uh, that always means there's a, a change for civil servants as well of course when there's a, a change of ministers. Oh wow that sounds like super exciting that you never get bored with this job. <laughs> no you don't and I think you know being an ambassador as well I think is one of those I mean it's a real privilege and um, you know I think um, you never become complacent about about doing a job like this uh, because to be able to represent your country overseas at this level at ambassador level um you know it's a real it does feel like a, a privilege you know i kind of have to pinch myself every now and again and you know in this job you know it's so varied so one day i could be you know talking to a mexican minister about a, a foreign policy issue uh, and the next day we could be trying to help a you know, a British national that's got into trouble in Cancun or mm -hmm. or else we could be negotiating or trying to sort of negotiate a, a trade agreement or, you know, I could be dealing with, you know, an issue within the embassy like you would do in any big organisation. So a human resources issue or a disciplinary issue or, you know, whatever, it, or financial issue. So it's, it's one of those jobs where, um, you know, or you could be giving a speech or doing a WeChat with the St Andrews Society. <laughs> so it's, it's really varied. And that's one of the things I, I love about it, actually, is that kind of variety in the job. Yeah, I, I can imagine it must be, you know, like really great not to have like a, this 
uh, routine, you know, during uh, your job. So every day is exciting and new and no. And also the great part is that you're like doing stuff that I imagine are very satisfactory, you know, like give you like this sense of that you're doing good for the world and I mean, that's, you know, something it's, it's, important it's, and relevant. Yeah. And that's, do you know what, that's always um, the thing that's sort of driven me in my career. Um, and it sounds like you're kind of, you know, uh, being interviewed as a as a beauty queen in the 1970s or something, when you say, well, what is it you believe in? And it's, well, I believe in world peace or, you know, making the world a better place. But actually, I genuinely do uh, believe that. And that's the thing that motivates me and I think has always motiv motivated me in my career. And I think... Um, one of the one of the reasons I've stayed uh, this long in the diplomatic service is that I genuinely believe that that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to make the world a better place. Sometimes we get it wrong, <laughs> um, so it's not always perfect, um, you know. And sometimes there are bad decisions or bad policies. But I think overall, um, you know, in the world of diplomacy, it does feel like you're trying to make things better uh, in the world and that's the thing that's sort of motivated me um, at a fairly basic level is is trying to sort of do good um, and that's what makes me want to get out of bed in the morning um, I call it the duvet test although it's too hot in Mexico to have duvets but in uh, in Britain uh, I call it the duvet test that a duvet test for any job is a job that makes you want to throw the duvet off in the morning and jump out of bed um, and <laughs> that's a great test <laughs> yeah it's, it's really important you've got to I think we spend so much time at work don't we um in our lives that you've got to be doing something which actually you enjoy and which motivates you um so yeah for me that's the the duvet test <laughs> No, that's amazing because actually, well, I know it's completely different, but it happened to me as well. Like my previous jobs, you know, I was like working in like marketing agencies. I'm a, I'm a designer. So I was, uh, you know, working in like the studios or like, but I, I don't know, like working for clients that are, the projects felt like meaningless. And I never thought of like joining academia, like uh, a, a little bit of, of what you were saying before. My father is a professor as well. So he was, you know, trying to encourage me like, you know, you should uh, give it a try it's really it's really nice and I was like no 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 no. I don't want to teach I can never see myself you know surrounded by teenagers no 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 no. I'll never do it and then once I tried it I, I felt like so good about everything like you know it was like so satisfying to to see the look in the students faces when they finally understand something and, yeah. and you know I, I, I got that feeling like okay uh, if I can you know even if it's just one person, but if I can make a change in one person's life towards making them better and making the world a better place, then that's like more than enough for me. So yeah, that's why I love my job. And now it, it passes the duvet test. <laughs> that's great. I'm glad that it does. And actually, I think for um, I mean, te teaching is such a, a, a tough job. Um, so it has to be, you've got to enjoy it, I think. Um, you've got to find it rewarding. Otherwise it would be, uh, you know, really exhausting. I would sort of see my parents coming home from work at the end of the day, uh, exhausted. And, and of course, you don't have weekends free because you've got to prepare lessons or prepare lectures, haven't you? Um, so, <laughs> and so great yeah. essays. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and great essays. So, no, I think you're, you're, you're right. You've got to, you've got to love it. Um, but I think what you say is something as well, which... Um, I find important in my in my life and in my career as well the sort of the you know helping other people and helping them to understand things and um 
I think in, in my career, one of the things I've done a lot of and which I really enjoy is um, is mentoring, sort of helping mm-hmm. um, people who are you know starting off in their careers to think about their their futures and think about you know their what jobs they want to do, think about their work and their life and how they can ensure that they're doing things that um, make them happy and and that they can get better in their job. So actually, mentoring is something which. Um, which I love doing and I find energizes me. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's part of my career has been that mentoring as well, whether sort of informal, so just helping people um, in my, in my team or else more formal than having a, a sort of a mentoring relationship with, with somebody. Because I think, as you say, that sort of eureka moment when you see somebody uh, achieve something or uh, understand something or they can see the path ahead for them, I think it's so rewarding for you as a, a teacher in your case or as a mentor or as a, a manager. So, yeah, I, I do love doing that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that reminds me, is that what the, the project you just posted, the Ambassador for a Day project is about or...? So it, it is, um, it, that's part of it. I mean, that one will be, um, it's sort of more short term in the sense that we have, in fact, it'll be over a few days, but for the, for the, the young lady that's been successful, um, you know, I will do some mentoring sessions with her, but also we'll involve her in some of our events for International Women's Day um, and we'll work with her on her, her project. She's doing an environmental project. So there's lots of different activities that we will work with her on. Um, but we are doing actually for International Women's Day, we're doing a speed mentoring event. Um, and I don't know if, if you've heard of speed mentoring, but yeah, it's where you have um, a series of mentors and a series of mentees. And then you have sort of like a 20 minute uh quick session with each one so you can kind of um you know try and sort of give some wisdom or some insights or some help in a short period so we're doing that as part of international women's day um but yeah i'm also running actually a mentoring program uh, across our diplomatic service for for women um And uh, I do, I find that really rewarding. I've got some mentees myself as part of that, but I'm also matching uh, mentors with mentees. Oh, wow. That's great. That sounds amazing. And something that we really need, you know, like uh, for young girls to be, you know, encouraged and, and supported. So and I agree, I agree with that. And I think it's something which for me, you know, I've benefited from um, throughout my life. Um, and I think that's what's inspired me. Occasionally I've met somebody, usually sort of older with more experience, that has really sort of shown me the way or helped me to kind of think about new opportunities or new ideas. And when I, when I have had those moments in my life or my career, they've, they've been sort of eureka moments, as you say, and have, have made a real difference to me in terms of my own self-confidence or, um, or thinking about what I might do next um, and, and opening new doors for me. And I think because, you know, I've been so grateful myself when I have met somebody that's, that's helped me, uh, that's what sort of motivated me to try and do that now for, um, for people that are starting out in their careers or uh, or, or are, are in their mid-career um, but are at a crossroads perhaps and are not quite sure what to do next and you know you face that self-doubt or lack of confidence so yeah I mean that's that's why that's why I'm doing it I think because I personally have benefited from that myself in my career oh that's brilliant yeah well uh 
yeah, congratulations on those projects. Uh, it's amazing that you're doing that. And speaking of like Women's Day and everything, have you ever had like a, a challenging moment, uh, you know, in in this like dip diplomatic environment when when you found it challenging uh, being a woman? Or how is the, the working environment regarding that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think on the whole, I've been quite fortunate. Um, uh, I've not really faced um, too much, uh, you know, discrimination that I've felt has held me back. I've had a couple of interesting moments. I think one um, when I was in Japan and I'm, you know, as, as you know, well, you're tall as well, but I'm, I'm tall. I'm five foot ten uh, and I used to have really, really short hair, sort of... Um, Uh, super short hair and uh, I so I, I was a little bit of an alien for um, for many for many Japanese people um, uh, and I remember um, that was a bit of a challenge sometimes that I would go into a, a Japanese ministry and I spoke fluent Japanese so I'd go into a Japanese ministry to talk about I don't know market access for our beef or, or one of our, our agricultural products or something and I would just see the look of horror on uh, on the men's faces because they were all men um at that time this was in the 1990s they would all be men doing the um the, the main jobs the kind of the uh the desk jobs um and i would walk into an office and just the look on people's faces i would i would never forget because they would think what is this this is kind of this kind of alien creature that's walked in sort of tall and short hair and speaking japanese um so that was I did find that was quite strange. Things have changed, obviously, uh, in, in Japan since then. Um, and I did have a fabulous time in Japan, I should say. But I do remember that was, um, I would often find that uh, people were slightly surprised by me being a woman uh, and uh, being tall. And in fact, if we, if I was at an event with James, my husband, um, you know, they would always talk, the men would always talk to James and assume that he was the diplomat. And James would say, mm. no, um, in fact, my wife is the is the diplomat. Um, you should talk to her. And they, they just would not understand that. They would they would insist on talking to James. And so that was that was a cultural difference, I think, uh, at the time in Japan that was um, that was quite challenging. Things, as I say, have changed a lot. And then I think in, in my in my service, in the diplomatic service, so mostly, um, I think if anything, it was an advantage being uh, in the minority because when I joined, there were very few women. Nowadays, it's much more diverse. But um, when I joined in the 1990s, there were very few women in senior positions in the foreign office. But I think the fact that I was different and also had a different background and I was a woman, I think actually, I think helped to get me noticed in a way I think it worked to my advantage um, but I have had once or twice in my career um, you know I think particularly one example for me is when I was um, when I was pregnant when I became pregnant with our first child Alex um, and I was um, you know and I told my my boss um, at the time that uh, I was pregnant and his immediate reaction was oh what a shame I thought you were ambitious um which wow, really which, which oh, came as a, yeah which was obviously really disappointing and came as a real shock and it did make me think wonder at the time I thought gosh well gosh do I have to choose and maybe I'm not that ambitious and have I done the wrong thing but of course I thought those things for about four seconds and then realized that it was it was him that was in the wrong uh, and of course I could have children and still be ambitious but I think it was a reminder that there was still plenty of people around who perhaps have those slightly more old-fashioned 
um, ways of thinking. Um, but on the whole, I think 90% of the time, uh, you know, I've not, I've not faced, I've not been aware of facing that discrimination. And in fact, I think in many ways, it's been an advantage being a bit different. Wow, that, that, that's amazing. And you know what I think that it's great to have people like you so that girls can be like inspired, you know, because sometimes maybe they believe that jobs like this can be intimidating or like hard to achieve. But like looking at people like you, you know, keeps them dreaming and going. So I think it's very important that we have, you know, these figures to, to look up to. Uh, and I noticed that uh, amongst the, uh, the um, world leaders, we're starting to see more female faces, you know, like in New Zealand, uh, Scotland, you know, they have uh, female prime ministers. So, you know, it's, it's great to have like um, people to look up to. So it's, it's great. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I guess it's, um, I think we are, um, you know, breaking stereotypes uh, more and more. Um, uh, but, I mean, I think we've still got quite a long way to go, haven't we? Because you do hear that, that still even now, um, children at the age of six, Um, have, have already many of them got a sort of an idea of what a, a girl's jobs and what a boy's jobs or what what mm -hmm. a girl's toys and what a boy's toys um, so I think I think we have made enormous progress um, and I think girls now um, you know see hopefully lots more opportunities for themselves in the world of science and technology diplomacy politics um, and I think for boys as well it's important to um, to be able to see themselves as having opportunities in the world of the arts or design or fashion, uh, things that were perhaps more traditionally uh, girls' jobs. So I think, I think it's a good time now for both boys and girls, uh, but we've still got quite a long way to go, I think. Yeah, you know, now that you mentioned it, I remember when I was uh, in university, it was like that, like in, in the design department, we were mostly girls and they were just like, four boys in, in our generation maybe and on the other hand in the engineering uh, school I don't know there were like three girls maximum so I don't know it's it's I don't know how it's now it would be interesting to go back and see the numbers again <laughs> but yeah it used to be like that and it wasn't like that long ago and you could still yeah. see a pattern yeah so I think COVID actually has been um It's really sort of helped brought that to the fore because obviously the world of science and technology is absolutely crucial to, uh, you know, helping to navigate uh, the way forward for the pandemic and for future pandemics. Um, but but women are still underrepresented in those uh, positions, decision-making positions in, in the world of science and technology. Um, but we know that actually... Uh, about 70% of the workforce in um, in the health sector globally is is made up of women, but they tend to be in more frontline uh, roles. So there is that. I think COVID has been really interesting to see that sort of disparity still between um, you know what roles women are playing in in the response. So I think we've still got a lot. I think we've made huge progress in, to be honest, in encouraging more girls to study science, technology, engineering and maths. And I think we're we're doing uh, great things in Mexico, in the UK and globally on that. But um, but yeah, we've clearly still got a long way to go to 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 reach, um, you know, true equality. The gap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But uh, as you say, I think we're on the right path. So it, it might take a while, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. And, you know, uh, you just uh, mentioned, you know, this anecdote about how, what happened in, in Japan during your time in Japan. 
But uh, do you have any uh, funny anecdotes or, you know, interesting things that have uh, happened to you during your time in Mexico, like cultural shock wise? <laughs> um, that's a good, a good one. Um, what could I get? Yeah. The first time I tasted pulque probably was <laughs> a bit of a culture shock. I'd, I'd read so much about pulque and its importance as part of sort of, uh, you know, uh, pre-Hispanic culture and, uh, and and the first time I tasted it, I think I was expecting it to taste a bit nicer. So that was a <laughs> No, but I, I don't blame you on that one. You know, it's, 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 it's hard. <laughs> I mean, the, the ones that are like flavored are not as bad, but still like the consistency is weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is quite strange. But in terms of other cultures, do you know, the, one of the things that um, came as a bit of surprise to me when I arrived Um, is the the importance of protocol in events here in Mexico. And I don't know if that's just Mexico or if it's a Latin American trait, but for instance, if I go to an event, um, there's always a, a really long panel or presidium with about 10 people sitting on it and everybody speaks. And each time somebody speaks, they have to thank every single person that's on the The panel and so so much of the event is taken up by saying thank you and um sort of recognizing and honoring everybody else that's there and and often there's very little time for actual discussion of the, of the topic <laughs> and that was that was something which came as a bit of a surprise when I started I was thinking well can we not just agree not to thank everybody and let's just get into a debate <laughs> about the issues but that was kind of um obviously I understand now I think I I recognize the importance of that protocol Um, and it's sort of a courtesy in a way, a mark of respect to other people. And I can see that that's an important part of, of Mexican uh, culture. And I've got used to it a bit now. But when I first arrived, I found it um, uh, quite bemusing um, and a little bit frustrating. But I've got used to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I get what you mean, because, yeah, we're like that. And, and even in emails, you know, I remember this time you know, that uh, I, when I was living in Glasgow that I was trying to write an email for uh, my supervisor or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, I started the email, you know, and it was like, oh, hello, thank you for your attention. I'm sorry for taking uh, so much of your time. I would really appreciate if you could, you know, like, and that went on for a while. And at the end of the email, it was like the same, like, oh, thank you, thank you again for taking the time to review this. And then uh, one of my Scottish friends, uh, What was there and I asked her if she could take a look to see if everything was right and she was like what's what's going on just like, like you know it's her job just like say hi say thank you once and that's enough like and I was like no but I don't want to seem rude like no but this is not it's not rude you know you're being <laughs> ridiculous with all these uh, like embellishments to your email just take that out and I'm like really Yeah, take it out. Okay, okay. Uh, it still feels weird to me, you know, and I sent it, but I, I felt like I was being rude in a way. And I, I, I don't know why, but I was like feeling anxious when I hit the send button without like all the previews, you know, like, thank you for your time thing. So yeah, that was, that was funny. very true. I recognize <laughs> that completely. And, and courtesy and that politeness is lovely in a way. And I'm sure I'll miss it when I when I leave. Uh, and it's things like, you know, people always, I, the number on my birthday, for instance, the number of people who I don't even know who would um, send sort of a birthday message or um, send, put a tweet on, on Twitter, wishing happy birthday. And, and sort of recognizing and celebrating other people seems to be, um, uh, you know, quite, quite important here, which is, which is lovely. But no, you're right. I think in Britain, although we've got, uh, traditionally, we have a reputation for being quite 
proper and quite polite and quite courteous, um, which I think is true. At the same time, mm-hmm. we're, we're quite direct, as you say, as you say, and that, that your example of the email is a really good one, that we tend to <laughs> just say what we think and uh, not have too much embellishment. But we tend to have a bit of politeness at the beginning and the end, but um, and we try not to be too rude to people, but we are pretty direct. Um, and yeah, so you do find, I think when sometimes when British people travel to other countries, um, people find, can find them quite offensive and uh, and uh, are sometimes surprised at how direct British people are, I think, because I say we've got this this reputation for being uh, super polite, but we're, we're not always that polite. <laughs> no, I, I think you are. Like, I, I've never had, like, a bad experience. So, well, so far, so I think you are quite polite and, and super nice. But, yeah, it's just, like, the cultural difference of, like, all the embellishment, as you say, you know, like, that we including yeah. everything but yeah and like right now you know with zoom meetings and everything it it, it can be a bit frustrating because uh, as you say it's like half an hour of you know small talk uh, and politeness and protocol and then we get started with the important things so it's <laughs> but, yeah but i i never thought that that would be what you found most uh, shocking about thing. I, I thought it would be, you know, I don't know, something, something else. But it's it's interesting, you know, to see these uh, cultural differences. You know, for me, when I when I was uh, living in Scotland, you know, the, in the university we had like a huge like international community, so it was uh, always weird to 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 think before you did anything. But for me, you know, like the physical contact was a bit of a like a cultural shock that you know I used to like um, try to to greet people by you know kissing as we do here in mexico and some people found out like a bit a bit uh, strange <laughs> and they, invading they and were pro- like whoa what are you doing <laughs> no they probably thought it was their lucky day tanya they were probably thinking <laughs> you know all my christmases have come at once but no you're right it's, it's, it, it is a big cultural difference we're, we're not very um touchy and actually in in the in britain i mean even compared to our our european uh friends you know in france or spain or italy they're much more uh, tactile um hugging and and kissing uh, yeah and we're not uh, we're not very tactile and i suspect it'd be interesting to see what happens to everybody after after coronavirus whether uh, mexico becomes goes back to hugging and kissing and whether france and spain go back to hugging and kissing i hope i hope you do i hope i hope everybody does eventually feel comfortable again uh, hugging and kissing but yeah britain is is not not a very huggy and kissy country <laughs> No, no, no. But, you know, it was like uh, interesting for me because uh, when my Scottish friends finally hugged me and kissed me, you know, it felt like a milestone for me. Like I, I, I broke the barrier. <laughs> so now we're <laughs> truly friends. Now we're truly close. So, you know, if, if they allow me to hug them and, and kiss them and being like super affectionate physically. So, yeah, that was like like a, an accomplishment. <laughs> no, that because sounds like that. an accomplishment. Yeah, particularly if they've not had too many whiskeys. You often find that <laughs> people are, are very, they don't touch and, and kiss and we keep our distance until we've had a few drinks and then suddenly um, we're hugging everybody and kissing everybody. So, yeah, whiskey is the magic. Is yeah, the, that's the, the, the magic, magic potion. potion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. That's great. And uh, well, but like speaking of like stereotypes, you know, because some of these things can can fall into that category, you know, like the British people being cold or like Mexicans being so like friendly or warm or well, but I guess those are like 
positive ones, but there are some others that are not so positive. Uh, what are the most common like misconceptions that British people have about Mexicans that you've learned to be, you know, different from what it's believed? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think probably you know if you read the headlines um, about Mexico in in the UK and in many countries. Um, or if you watch Netflix, um, then, you know, people tend to hear about the violence or the drugs or the corruption. And those tend to be the things I think if people don't really know much about Mexico, uh, they tend to assume that Mexico's uh, a very dangerous place, which is full of drug lords and, uh, you know, is, is, is very violent and it's not safe to live here. And I think um, that's, that's definitely something which is a, a stereotype, which, which isn't true because obviously Mexico, I mean, obviously does have problems with, uh, with drugs and violence and corruption, but actually if you're living, uh, you know, like, like we are here in Mexico city, um, you can live a fabulous uh, life and live very freely. Well, when it's not COVID times, you can live very freely um, and enjoy a really modern dynamic country and culture, go to the theater, the cinema, shopping, eat in fantastic restaurants without having to worry about your personal uh, security or safety. Well, and certainly no more than you would do living in London, for instance, where, of course, in a big city, you always have to be a little bit aware of, of what's going on around you. But um, I think that's probably one of the things which is the uh the biggest sort of stereotype which is probably not not fair it's not a fair stereotype about mexico because there's so much diversity in this country and although there may be parts of the country which you know are more dangerous um you know there's lots of places uh, the, the vast majority of places in mexico are beautiful places uh where you feel safe and uh, where you can really enjoy enjoy yourself and have a, a fabulous experience so i think that's that's probably one of the main negative stereotypes, which I think is probably, which isn't fair. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I remember when I was living there, like most of the questions I got regarding Mexico was that, you know, like, how do you live your everyday life without worrying, you know, you know regarding violence and how easy it was to get drugs? You know, that kind of questions. And, you know, I found it upsetting at first, but then I understood that it's what's been portrayed in the, in the media. And it's uh, really, you know, I don't know, like, uh, it's so surprising how media is so powerful when telling the stories of, of other cultures. And yeah, there's been only representation of that kind of stories, like mainly in like, you know, in movies, in series, and like you see stories about drug lords like everywhere. So I think uh, like producers of this kind of uh, media projects have to be more aware of uh, what, the, what they're doing and think of more diverse stories to tell because I think there's a lot of things to tell about you know like Mexico in general and they're not being told so yeah and no, I, I agree with that and I think you know I think in the UK um, there's more awareness now of all the fabulous Mexican art and culture and film which tells a different story and shows a different side of of the country um so i think things are are changing and obviously with the fabulous mexican filmmakers that have been so successful in mm -hmm. recent years and some of the, the tv series um and you know the an art i mean for instance um the frida carlo museum uh, frida carlo exhibition at the victoria and albert museum um just a few years ago now i think was the most popular exhibition that the victoria and albert had ever had oh, ever was it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And there's a, so there is a real appetite for 
for um, for Mexico, for all things that Mexico has to offer. And of course, Mexican food. I mean, there's uh, an explosion of Mexican, uh, you know, authentic Mexican restaurants and uh, mezcal bars and tequila bars in, in London in particular, but across the UK. So I think people are starting to um, be exposed to much more of that diversity of Mexican culture. And so hopefully those stereotypes will will change over time. Yeah, hopefully. Because, you know, even series that are being produced here, I think sometimes they keep telling, you know, this kind of stories, you know, along this line. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we can um, have more diverse representation. But it's great about, you know, the arts, you know, like this kind of thing, like exchange of uh, exhibitions and collections and that really opens uh, of the the eyes of, of of people but i think it's not exclusive to mexico it happens a lot with with other cultures as well like for instance uh my mexican friends are really surprised when i tell them that i belong to the scottish uh, uh association and, and and honestly they don't know much about scotland so i, I think you know it, it goes both ways as well and I know, I'm sure that's right. Absolutely. And I think um, I think that applies to the UK generally, actually. I think if I talk to to people um, and say, what do you know about the UK? Then sometimes they will mention um, Downton Abbey or they'll mention The Crown or, uh, you know, they'll mention something which sort of tells... Outlander. <laughs> oh, Outlander. Yeah, yeah, Highlander. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they will you know, talk about a very sort of narrow aspect of, of the UK and they'll think that we all live like uh, the people in Downton Abbey or uh, like the people in the, in the Crown. And, uh, and actually, I think, um, you know, I think obviously the UK too is much more diverse, much more dynamic. And, um, and so I think one of our jobs here and one of my jobs and the embassy's jobs is to try and um, help promote um, everything that you, the UK has to offer. It's a very sort of modern, it's got lots of history and traditions, but um, but actually it's got so much um, which is modern, dynamic uh, and new and innovative as well. And that applies to the whole of the country um, and certainly to Scotland as well. So I think part of our job as an embassy is to help to promote that sort of soft power, if you like, you know, the all the stuff that the country has to offer um, in its true diversity. No, you have a lot to offer. Like every time that I go and visit, you know, there's this huge list of places to visit, uh, restaurants to go to, you know, like it, it's uh, it's never ending. So you you never get bored. There's always a, a new place to, to go to. And it's 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 brilliant. So we heard that sadly you are leaving us this year. So uh, what are you going to remember most about your time as an ambassador in Mexico? Well, yes, no, I am. I'm leaving in the summer, so and it, it, it has gone so quickly. It'll it'll be three three years, but but um, you know, and I would love to stay stay for longer. I think, um, gosh, what am I going to miss? So much. I'm going to miss so much about being here. The people, uh, the people have been, you know, wherever I've travelled in the country, uh, you know, the people have been so friendly, so welcoming. Um, so hospitable. Uh, the sunshine, of course, I'll miss. <laughs> I, really, I do love the climate in Mexico City, actually, because, uh, you know, it's, it's always sunny, um, but it's not too hot for, um, for somebody from the UK, whereas some bits of Mexico are a bit too, too hot for, for the Brits. Um, but Mexico City, 
the climate I, I do love. And I will miss um, the beautiful arts and crafts. Again, wherever I travel, um, even a very sort of uh, modest local market will have such beautiful artesania. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I find the textiles, the art, the crafts here, um, absolutely beautiful. All the colours uh, and the different materials that are used. So I, I will miss, I'll miss that, certainly. Um, you know, and, and of course, the food, uh, Mexican food is famous the world over. Um, but I do hope that when I go home, I'll be able to take advantage of the of all the new Mexican restaurants which are, are popping up. Um, but, yeah, I think that's what I will miss the most. I will miss traveling. And in fact, you know, I've, I've missed traveling um, during the last you know year or so as well with the pandemic, because I find Mexico is such a, a big and such a diverse country uh, geographically and socially um, that I've loved getting to know different regions, different towns and different people. You know, I find meeting people in, in the north of, of Mexico, they'll have a very different perspective on life to uh, people in, in Chiapas or, um, or Oaxaca. And, and I love that. I love the kind of the, the, the diversity of the country. Um, and there's so much history here. Uh, you know, I, I, that's where I started, as I mentioned, when I was a student, I was studying a lot about Mexican uh, history and literature. Um, and I feel like I've come full circle because, you know, I really enjoy learning more about, um, uh, about uh, you know, the, the centuries and centuries of fascinating uh, history here in, in Mexico. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, we're we're gonna miss you. It, it, it was really great to to get to know you, and and you know the the little uh, times we we got to enjoy your your company because sadly this year we we weren't able to do so as much as we would like. But yeah, it's it's been amazing. So, um, well, good luck on your next project, next adventure, and yeah, it was brilliant having you here. We're glad you you had a good time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm going to continue making the most of it until I leave in the summer to make the most of my experience here. But then, of course, I'll I'll continue to stay in touch and I will be following the the great progress of the St. Andrews Society of Mexico with with interest. And I know you will be, um, you know, you will be in good hands as well with my successor, John Benjamin. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sure he will be a great ally of the St. Andrews Society as well. So I will. But I will continue to support you from afar when I leave. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, we look forward to meeting Benjamin. It'll be very nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Corinne. This was this was a, a lovely chat. Is there well, anything lovely. else you, you would like to add to our listeners? No, just thank you very much for organizing this. I think, as you say, these WeChats are a fabulous idea, um, particularly during the pandemic. Um, I hope everybody that's listening is well, looking after themselves. Uh, and I hope to be able to see you, or some of you at least, before too long when the situation allows. But otherwise, thanks very much, Tanya, for inviting me. Uh, thank you for joining us. And yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to see you before you leave. We'll see how everything goes. But thank you. Thank you for joining us today. It was wonderful. Great. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Okay, that was all for today. It was great having Corinne with us, sharing her experience and all of the interesting things she had to say. We want to thank all the team at the British Embassy for making this happen. And of course, thank Corinne herself for joining us today. If you like this episode, please, please leave us a comment on our social media. If you have any questions, suggestions, 
uh, please get in touch. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, bye bye.